I let our music planners do their job. I'm not a micromanager. And um, perhaps there's times when I should be a little more involved, but I did ask them to do one song, and we're going to, it's waiting in the wings. We get to do it at the end of the service today, so it'll be kind of fun. Give you something to look forward to. So if you're tempted to leave because I get boring, hang on because we've got this neat song to do at the end of the service, okay? Um, but I, I, I love the way that God orchestrates things in spite of the fact that I may be not here to say to the, our praise team, well, here's the songs I'd like you to sing today. Like, your grace is enough. And how deep the Father's love for us. I, I just think that so much of what we sang today fits in to the heart of these stories that Dean read for us moments ago. And there, uh, actually, in this com- particular confrontation with the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, Jesus responds to them by telling three parables. And we're going we're to focus on two today, and I'll tell you why. To me, the third parable about the prodigal son is really a picture of the Father's heart towards us. Not that the others aren't. But I think um, the other two speak more to what our heart should be toward the lost. Because he talks about a shepherd. And we know Jesus was the good shepherd. I understand that. But there were a lot of shepherds in that pastoral culture of that day. People lived in that. It was an agrarian pastoral society where people understood the things about shepherds and sheep. And then something someone else or the people would have understood at that time is, is this woman who'd lost one of... Ten coins and how valuable and important that was to her and the effort she made to relocate that thing. So, to me that says, that speaks to what our heart should be toward the lost. Um, I want to open with an illustration by Joseph Stoll. Um, He was once uh, president of Multnomah School of the Bible in Portland, Oregon, and, and now I think he's at Moody or still, I don't know, he may not still be there in Chicago, but he shares this story. He said, we were on our annual Christmas trek to Chicago. Each year we brought our family to spend time with Grandpa and Grandma and visit the museums. This year we decided to finish our Christmas shopping at Suburban Woodfield Mall. In the midst of all the fun and excitement, one of us noticed that little three-and-a-half-year-old Matthew was gone. Terror immediately struck our hearts. We'd heard the horror stories, little children kidnapped in malls, rushed to the restroom, donned in different clothes, an altered hairstyle, and then swiftly smuggled out, never to be seen again. We split up, each of us taking an assigned location. Mine was the parking lot. I'll never forget that night, kicking through the new fallen snow, calling his name at the top of my lungs. I felt like an abject fool, yet my concern for his safety outweighed all other feelings. Unsuccessful, I trudged back to our meeting point. My wife, Marty, had not found him, nor had my mother. And then my dad appeared, holding little Matthew by the hand. Our hearts leaped for joy. Interestingly enough, Matthew was untraumatized. He hadn't been crying. To him, there had been no problem. I asked my father where he he had been found. The candy counter, he replied. Duh. 
You should have seen him. His eyes came just about as high as the candy. He had his little hands behind his back and moved his head back and forth, surveying all the luscious options. Matthew didn't look lost. He didn't know he was lost. He was oblivious to the phenomenal danger he was in. And then Stoll closes with this. This is a candy counter culture where people don't look lost and don't know they're lost and live for themselves. Our, Our scripture today is Jesus' response to the Pharisees' charge that he welcomes and eats with sinners and tax collectors. Yeah. The Greek word for welcomes literally means to receive as a friend. That's what they were accusing Jesus of. You're receiving sinners. Isn't it interesting that sinners and tax collectors were in two different categories? It was kind of like sinners and tax collectors. We may still feel that way, huh? So Jesus is accused of of welcoming them, of receiving them as friends. That was Jesus' attitude toward those lost in sin. He thought it was just fine to befriend them and love them to God. Which was vastly different than the Pharisees' view of such people. In Jesus' day, to eat with someone was more than just sharing a meal together. It was a covenantal experience, meaning that once you shared a meal with someone, you were bound to them. If they were ever in need of help, they could call on you as a friend to come to their assistance. So the Pharisees were careful about whom they broke bread with. Yeah, you don't want anybody calling you a friend. That, well, you know... <laughs> They didn't want to become unclean and they certainly didn't want to be, to be beholden to a sinner. But Jesus, he ate with anyone and everyone, including the worst of the worst in the Pharisees' eyes. Pharisees sought to live pure and holy lives by living according to the letter of the law. By Jesus' time, they had been, become extremely critical of others who didn't live like them or believe like them. They assumed an us-versus-them mentality. And by the way, we have to be careful about that. You know? Um, did I tell you about the time that... I think I did. We played uh, bunker defense soccer. We were playing a team that was undefeated and untied. I think I told you this story. And so what we did was we just pulled everyone back around our goal and played... It was this bunker, let's huddle up around our goal and just nobody's going to get a shot in there. And that's kind of what we do sometimes as a church. We've got this bunker mentality. The world's out to get us and we just got to hole up in the church and make sure nothing bad happens to us. Yeah? I mean, this is a pretty comfortable place to be. You know, I know you, you know me, and we pretty much like each other. And... So it was an us versus them mentality with, with the Pharisees. And anyone who disagreed with them was an outsider. But that is why Jesus came. He came to save those who were far from God, who were outside. 
As a result of all of this, the Pharisees didn't think Jesus was seeking to live a pure and holy life. Because of those with whom he associated. And so Jesus responds to the charges of the Pharisees with three parables. Two of which we're going to look at today. And there are two questions as we begin this that I want you to consider. One. What do these parables tell us about what is priority to God? That's the first question. What do these parables tell us about what is priority to God? Second question. Do I share God's priority in this matter? Do I share God's priority in this matter? And it's the first question in these It's the first question that I presented to you that Jesus answers in these parables. And in doing so, raises the question of whether the Pharisees and us share that priority with God, God's priority. Now, when Jesus taught parables, he drew from the world around him. He used images and objects of everyday life to teach people about God and his kingdom. And so the first parable is that of the lost sheep. And, the, you know, the pages of the Bible are littered with images of sheep and shepherds. All through the Old Testament, we see it in the New Testament. They appear at critical, these illustrations or images appear at critical times in the story of God's people. And and these Pictures are are rich in content. Clear back in Genesis, chapter 48, verse 24, Jacob, on his deathbed, summarizes his life with God, saying that God has been the shepherd of his life to this day. Psalm 23 speaks of God as the good shepherd. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me, even as the Father's knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. And amidst all of the images of shepherd and sheep, there's one constant in the scripture. We're the sheep. Now you've heard about sheep before. I think I've talked about them. They're really not very flattering to be compared to. Um, They aren't the brightest animals in God's creation. They're social creatures and need the flock. They're basically defenseless. And so they're extremely vulnerable when they're by themselves. They're out on their own. And they're dependent on the shepherd to lead them to pasture, to find water, and to protect them from predators. We're sheep. In this parable, Jesus shocks and even offends the Pharisees with the statement, Suppose one of you had a hundred sheep and loses one. See, in this pastoral culture, where where describing a sheep that had strayed, you would never say, Well, I lost one of my sheep. That would indicate that you are an incompetent shepherd. To save face, you'd say, one of them wandered off or one of my sheep got lost. 
Now the Pharisees, who were the religious leaders of the, of the, of the people, are challenged by Jesus, who says that they were the shepherds who had lost a sheep. Obviously, this would have angered them by implying that they haven't been living up to the responsibility to care for the sheep as they should. They're incompetent shepherds. And in this parable, we learn two things. Of the, the story of the shepherd going out for the one sheep that's lost. First, the shepherd doesn't blame the sheep. Lousy sheep keeps running off. That's what we used to say about our cows. Lousy cows keep getting out. No, he doesn't blame the sheep, but he does have compassion for it. So he goes off to find it, and he leaves the 99 behind. But he doesn't leave the 99 alone. Some might have that picture. Well, Jesus runs off to help this run and leaves them all by themselves. That's not... New Testament scholar Kenneth Bailey says that in Palestine, the average peasant family might have had 5 to 15 sheep. Thus, someone responsible for 100 sheep would not be the sole owner of the sheep, nor the sole shepherd looking after the sheep. Remember, even in the Christmas story, there were shepherds on the hill keeping watch over their flock by night. Therefore, having one of the shepherds leave to find the lost sheep does not mean that the 99 are left alone to their own devices. That wouldn't be a good idea for sheep anyway. But it does suggest that the shepherd has enough compassion for the one to leave the 99 with other shepherds to search for that one. Then in our second parable, Jesus speaks of a woman who loses a coin in her house and goes to great lengths to find it. Now, the house of a common person in Jesus' day would have been equivalent to maybe the size of a small apartment in our day. They just didn't need 3,000 square feet, I guess. I don't know. Now, so... In the northern part of Israel, where, where this was taking place, the main building material was basalt or volcanic rock for, for the walls and, and, and the floors and maybe even sometimes uh, the ceilings or the, the roof. It was generally dark in color. And most homes had few or no windows, and if they did have windows, they were small. And so a lamp would have been needed to find the coin in the dim light of the home. And even though the house is small, the coin wasn't initially found. So that incited even greater urgency, because the woman knew it had to be there somewhere. And it was critical her to, to find it because it was a day's worth of wages. In a country where 90% of the people were poor and struggling to survive, Jesus' audience would have understood how important it was to find that lone coin and the woman's desperation in searching for it. So, what do we learn from this parable of Jesus? Well... It takes perseverance to find that which is lost. 
The woman knows that if she will just keep looking, if she'll just keep sweeping, she's confident the coin will eventually be found. You know, for many of us, the greatest challenge is making meaningful connection with the lost. We have a tendency sometimes to go comfortable with where we are spiritually and we're pretty comfortable with our church family. And we can fall prey to our cultural or the great value that our culture puts on independence and that each person is responsible for their own spiritual journey and we value privacy and we believe that faith and relationship with God might be, you know, that's, that's your concern. It's none of my business. If we're honest, we have to confess sometimes our own lack of perseverance in seeking loss for whatever reason, whether it's some of these I've cited or others. Sometimes it's a lack of confidence in our own speaking ability or even knowing what to say in the first place. Sometimes it's a fear of embarrassment or ridicule. Maybe it's a lack of motivation because we don't have an urgency for what's really at stake here. Do we know what's at stake here? I know sometimes we have a hard time getting our minds around eternity because we're time bound. You know, I think in terms of seconds and minutes and hours and days and weeks and months and years and centuries and things like that. But eternity is uh, forever without end. And so to wrap our minds around the fact that someone would be lost for eternity, spend eternity in, it's called the eternal death. How do you wrap your mind around that? And that place that the Bible describes now as hell and will eventually be the lake of fire. Do we understand what's at stake here? But rarely is our lack of perseverance, rarely is it because there's a lack of opportunity. Because those who are far from God are all around us. And most of the time for us, maybe all the time for us, is, is it's a matter of we've chosen not to act. And we just failed to place our trust in God in that moment in time when maybe we're called to make a step forward and talk to somebody about Jesus. Like the disciples, we need that filling of the Holy Spirit to overcome that which holds us back and ask for the burning passion and desire that the early disciples had and that the shepherd and the woman had to seek the lost. So, what are our takeaways from this story? Number one, God's people must have a burden for the lost. In both of these stories, that which was lost was important enough that there was an urgency to find it. That which was lost was important enough that there was an urgency to find it. 
And, and scriptures reveal God's heart in this matter. Luke 19.10, God's heart for the lost. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. The Son of Man came, here's why Jesus came, to seek and save the lost. Second Peter 2.9 For the Lord is not slow in keeping His promise, as some understand slowness. In other words, why hasn't Jesus come back yet? That's the question that's being asked. Instead, He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone. Not anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. God wants everyone on the planet to be in heaven with him someday. That's what this is telling us. And so Jesus hasn't come, out, come back and brought an end to everything because God is giving people time to repent and turn to him so that they can spend eternity with him because that's what he wants. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1-4. through 4, Paul writes, I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people. He goes on to say, For kings and those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior, Here it is again. Who wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth? I can't think of anyone in these scriptures that's left out when God says everyone and all. So folks, we need to share God's burden for the lost. And this last verse I read, these verses I read from Timothy, they tell us what we can do to develop a burden. And what we should do when we carry a burden, we pray. First of all, I urge you then to make prayers and petitions. We pray. We pray for people who are lost and need Jesus. And we need then, when we pray, to ask for holy boldness and the guidance of the Holy Spirit. So when the door of opportunity opens, we're ready to interact with these folks about spiritual things. The second takeaway is this. Jesus encourages God's people to search for the lost. Jesus encourages God's people to search for the lost. But what does that mean for us? After all, you don't have to look very far to find people who are lost. Honestly, it doesn't take a lot of searching. We're not like the shepherd out there wandering the hills somewhere and checking the crags and canyons. and Because they're all around us. Lost sheep are all around us. Here's what we need to do. Here's how we search. We make connections with people. We make connections with lost sheep. We find similarities, like a job or a hobby or a common interest or a cause or any number of things. The point is to find a a touch point of commonality and connection with a person and begin to develop a relationship with them. In fact, Joseph Stoll, whose illustration I read first thing this morning, he's written a book called Gentle Persuasion. It's all about this idea of building relationships with people to earn the right to share Jesus with their lives, in their 
and with them, with their lives. Listen, if, if you open yourself up to it, God will place people in your life so that you can get to know them and share life with them and share Jesus with them. But to do that, we need to show people that we're willing to hear their stories, that we are genuinely interested in them. They're not just a notch on our get-them-saved gun. Look at this. Fourteen notches. Whoa. You're dangerous. We need to show people that we're willing to hear their stories, that we're genuinely interested in them, and then proving it by serving them in any way we can. People don't care, and I think Maxwell said this, people don't care how much we know until they know how much we care. So take time for others. Develop friendships with people outside the body of Christ, people who don't know Jesus. Some lost sheep. And then, through the guidance of the Holy Spirit, as that progresses, begin spiritual conversations and extend invitations. Listen, if you, if you just can't get to the point of talking about spiritual things and the scripture and Jesus, then extend an invitation to them. At least do that. Invite them to church with you. Whether it be an outreach event or a Bible study or a Sunday morning worship service. Extend an invitation. They say that's still the most effective way to get people to church is just invite them. And then the next takeaway, the goal of God's people is that the lost would be found. Because that's God's goal. Got to be our goal too. Do we share God's priority or don't we? If we do, then we must understand that to find the lost takes persistence. In these parables, Jesus, Jesus notes specifically that the shepherd and the woman kept seeking, kept looking for that which was lost until it was found. Oh, lousy sheep, I'll never find that thing. Forget it, I'm going back to the fold where the 99 are. Persistence is needed because finding lost sheep among spacious fields and hills and lost coins in the dirt or stone floor of a dark home would not have been easy. If people don't respond immediately, don't give up and walk away. Well, I tried, and they wouldn't listen. Keep praying. Keep talking with them. Keep developing a deeper relationship with them. It takes time. Hey, our first efforts hardly ever meet with success. Not saying that it never happens, but usually it's not the first effort that is successful. Sometimes it takes years of persistence, but we should not be discouraged or give up. Julie's grandma, 40 years. Took 40 years. 40 years her family prayed for her grandma. If a sheep or a coin was valuable enough to persistently search for, then people who are spiritually lost are too valuable to give up on. 
And then finally, our last takeaway. When the lost is found, the response is joy. There is great joy when the lost is found. The religious leaders of Jesus' day were indifferent and even antagonistic toward the lost. Jesus uses these two parables to point out how wrong their attitudes were. The Pharisees, who would have seen the importance of finding a lost sheep or coin, they would have understood that. They would have understood the sheep thing. They would have understood the coin thing. We're missing the importance of lost people, lost souls. So coins are important. Sheep are important. But people, uh, that was the attitude. If they were joyful at the recovery of a lost sheep or a lost coin, certainly they should have been more joyful when the lost came to Jesus. Because the one thing that matters most to God is the lost. So much so that when the lost are found, even one of them, all heaven rejoices and there's a party going on up there or out there, wherever it is. There is more joy over one sinner coming to Jesus than over 99 people being right where they're supposed to be with God. That should be, I hope, indicative of most of us. Okay? But God gets pumped. And so do the angels. Yay, God. Yay, God. Another miracle. Let's party. That's what they do. One more, one more, one more. If lost people matter that much to God, shouldn't they matter that much to us? And is there any greater joy in the church than when lost people are found and come to Jesus? There's a lot of things that we can get excited about, but man, when a life is transformed and someone receives Jesus as his Savior and they're they're on the road, on the road to, to heaven and... Yes! Man, that'll get a church fired up. So what about us? What about you? Is finding the loss as important to you as it is to God? Do you have a compassion and burden great enough that you're willing to get out of your comfort zone to find them it's what it's about a lot of times isn't it that zone of comfort Matt Chandler tells a story of a man named Dave Carnes when the World Trade Center tumbled to the ground on that dreadful dark day more than 3,000 people lost their lives but a few who were buried beneath the rubble miraculously survived Two of these were Will Gimeno and John McLaughlin, a pair of Port Authority employees who responded to the attack and were on the bottom floor as the South Tower fell on top of them. Trapped without water and breathing smoke-filled air, both men had little hope for survival. Yet as they lay underneath a mountain of debris, something was stirred inside an accountant in Connecticut. Connecticut. Dave Carnes, 
who had spent 23 years in active duty in the Marines, was watching the scene play out on TV like the rest of us. Do you remember that day? We got a phone call from a friend who said, I think the world's ending. But more than just allowing it to trouble him, he decided to do something about it. He went to his boss and told him he wouldn't be back for a while. (laughs) He went home and put on his fatigues and then drove 120 miles an hour to ground zero, arriving by late afternoon. While rescue workers were being called off the site, Dave was able to stay because of the clout and the credential of his uniform. Finding another Marine, the two joined forces and walked the pile of debris together, seeking to save a life. After an hour of searching, they heard the faint tapping on metal pipes. It was Will and John who had been trapped for more than nine hours. This Marine, who had been working a spreadsheet just hours before, found them, began to dig, and then freed these two men. Of the 20 people pulled out to safety, Will and John were numbers 18 and 19. And all because Dave Carnes took off his suit, put on his rescue fatigues, rolled up his sleeves, and stepped into the despair and darkness of ground zero. And then Matt Chandler says this, in the same way, but to an infinitely greater degree, God took off his royal robes, stepped into the dark and depraved culture, and served us. We were buried in the depths and rubble of our own foolishness, with zero chance of pulling ourselves out of our own sin. We were without hope until the Holy One clothed himself in humanity to rescue us, to become sin for us on the cross. Our service to others then must be grounded in the truth of the gospel, Christ's birth, life, death, and resurrection for us and for them. It begins and ends with Jesus. Begins there because he is our original motivation and ends there because in him we are empowered to serve and save others. Amen and amen. Is that us? Um, We're going to sing an old hymn. My dad sang in the shower. He sang hymns in the shower. He's saying old hymns in the shower. He's saying this hymn in the shower. And so when I was preparing it, I thought of this. It's not in the Nazarene hymnal anymore. We had to go back two hymnals uh, to find it. It's called Seeking the Lost. Yeah, we're over here, guys. Sorry. And I think we're going to be down here. Or right down here. Okay. If you want to go ahead and line up. Hoop two, hoop two. It was written in 1750. Was it? By uh, William, no, what's it, was it written that long ago? 1800s, I thought. It was written by a guy named William Ogden. Just to give a little credit to the Ogden family, who's Phyllis's ancestor, I'm sure. It's called Seeking the Lost. And it's a fun song to sing because it's a little different. Uh, the men uh, sing uh, the melody on the chorus. That's why this group of men up here. And uh, I know we don't have the music, but we do have the words up here. So 
Do your best to follow along. But this should be us. This should be us. As we sing the words, you'll see why I say that. I think it's a great song to sing because it applies so much to these parables that I spoke on this morning. So... Search them out, 